0: Welcome to AEM Early Access, a podcast of the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine and the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. Most of us working in emergency medicine have noted an uptake in recreational cannabis use over the last several years, especially in states in which marijuana use has been legalized. Today we're talking to Dr. Esther Chu about her team's new paper in AEM called Increased Identification of Cannabis User Drivers Involved in Motor Vehicle Collisions Using an Expanded Cannabis Inventory. Dr. Chu is an MD, MPH, and Professor of Emergency Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. She conducts research on policies and health services related to drug and alcohol use, and we are honored to have her here with us today. And it's especially a treat for me as once upon a time Dr. Chu and I worked together at Brown. Dr. Chu would like to note that funding for this research is provided by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. Don't forget to read the full text of this article, available for a limited time from the publisher. Dr. Chu, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming to talk to us about this paper. So great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you note in your paper that detecting cannabis use is important for both clinical and research reasons. So what are the most common ways that we currently identify cannabis users in the emergency department? And as you note in your paper, what are some of the pitfalls that are associated with these techniques these days?
1: Well, I think we have gone a long way in emergency medicine to try to standardize the questions that we ask about high-risk health behaviors, um, alcohol use, smoking, drug use, but we've um, we've often used really abbreviated questions that sometimes don't lead to the answers that we anticipate. So for example, um, in ERs where I've worked, and I- I'm sure this is still out there, we often will ask about alcohol use and then we'll ask about and then do you use any illegal drugs or illicit drugs? Mm. And I remember mm. even when, you know, when you and I worked together back in Rhode Island Hospital, mm-hmm. I used that screener for a research project I was doing. And people would say, they'd say, No illegal drugs.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: just use cannabis, which <laughs> at that time, you know, <laughs> um, you know, cannabis is increasingly a legal drug for recreational use, but at that time it was mostly illegal, and it just made me laugh because cannabis had become so normative that people didn't think about it as an illegal drug, yeah. and yet we still had these kind of traditional ways of asking about it. And if you look at even um, these really well-validated instruments that we use in research settings where we ask specifically about cannabis, um, some of the major ones that we've used over the over the past decades will say, um, do you use marijuana or do you use cannabis, for example, A joint or weed, um, which is a very specific type of smoked cannabis. And I think probably in the past that captured the vast majority of cannabis that was used, but increasingly, I mean, if you come to a legalized state like mine and you walk into a dispensary, um, the first thing that strikes you, or at least struck me when I first walked into a dispensary was, um, the very vast number of forms that cannabis is now sold in and, um, uh, I mean, it strikes you if you walk into a grocery store here, where you can get teas and tinctures and lotions and things like that. And so, it's we're so beyond uh, the era where you can just ask about a joint and capture all of cannabis. So that was kind of um, high in my mind as we um, as we went into this research project.
0: No pun intended. Oh my Uh, gosh, it
1: wasn't intended, but so good. I'll continue trying to do that.
0: (laughs) All right. So enter now the expanded cannabis inventory that we're going to be discussing today. So before we get into the details of your study, which looks at the uh, implementation and potential capture rate of that tool, tell us about this inventory and how it was developed.
1: Yeah, basically my team, as we were preparing to uh, capture patients with cannabis use in the emergency department and asked them some detailed questions about it so we could kind of get the landscape of cannabis use in this much more liberalized uh, era that we're in. We looked at existing instruments and we felt like they don't really capture the kinds of use that we're seeing clinically in the emergency department or hearing about mm-hmm. just out in the world. And so we did a pretty comprehensive online review of different cannabis forms. And we created this initial form of our expanded cannabis inventory that asked, you know, first of all, do you use marijuana or do you use hash concentrates? And then once they said what they used in general, we asked a lot about how do you use it? You know, do you smoke it? Do you inhale it? Do you um, use an edible form? What kind of edible form? Is it a lozenge or, you know, how, how is it that you're that you're um, using cannabis? And then we um, did a lot of review among experts drug researchers, and then we took it to the bedside and recruited patients who used cannabis and had them just look at the questionnaire and reflect on it Mm -hmm. and then got feedback and then iteratively reviewed it from there until we had um, this inventory that we thought did a pretty good job of capturing a wide range of forms um, and also had some open text fields so people could fill in if we didn't offer an option that, um, that... uh, you know, was concordant with how they used cannabis. They could also uh, give us additional information.
0: Okay, all right. So this study that we're talking about today is part of a larger parent study. So can you tell us about that parent study?
1: Yeah, the big study is really asking the question: What is the relationship between cannabis use, alcohol use, and your risk of getting into a car accident? Um, an MVC. And that is data that we have pretty well characterized for alcohol use. You know, alcohol use, we can almost say per drink what your increased odds are for getting into a a motor vehicle collision. Mm -hmm. For cannabis, very different. We're in the kind of the wild, wild west, where um, states are trying different things to try to estimate how intoxicated you are from cannabis and whether that was likely to have impaired your driving, you know? Mm -hmm. So some states actually behave like there's a formal cutoff, but in fact, that's not well supported by the literature. And, um, and there's a lot of conflicting literature, some literature that says that there, um, you know, is not as great a risk that, risk occurs in certain context or that there's actually not driving risk. So that was the question that we're asking. And in the parent study, we recruited both motor vehicle collision patients um, who were drivers and drivers who came into the ER for other reasons and more medical controls. And we obtained lots of data on them, took their blood samples for Delta 9 THC levels and, and some metabolite levels. We asked them a ton of questions, including their same-day and past year cannabis use mm. patterns.
0: Okay. Yeah, it gets so complicated relative to alcohol because you don't know the strength of what they're smoking or just it's just hard to right. quantify how much they're taking in. That's exactly right. Uh, so the study we're discussing today, what were your main objectives?
1: Well, for this study, we really focused in on this expanded instrument, and the instrument starts with asking about these traditional forms, you know, how much do you smoke per day? So it's very similar to the way that we used to ask about cannabis, and then we go from there into asking about lots of other forms. And so we thought it would be interesting to see, let's just take that smoking screen question um, and compare how many patients we captured just using that simple question, which is, I would say, the standard way that we ask about uh, cannabis use or have traditionally. And then we looked at people who said no to that, so wouldn't have been captured by that question, but said yes somewhere else in the questionnaire to, to different forms that are, um, you know, like we discussed, kind of inhaled forms, how concentrate use or, um, or edibles or beverages or whatever it was. And uh, we wanted to see potentially what was the difference if we used an expanded instrument compared to using um, a more traditional simplified question. And um, and we looked, in this case, we looked at just the drivers who got into MVCs. So we looked at the injured population.
0: Okay, great. So tell us a little bit more about your methods and your inclusion, exclusion criteria, et cetera.
1: Sure. So we included uh, people who had been the drivers in a motor vehicle collision, uh, we only included English-speaking patients, and we excluded those who um, who had some, you know, standard exclusion criteria, things like uh, being under arrest um, or uh, if they had an altered mental status or were clinically intoxicated when they came into the emergency department. We were not able to consent those patients, although we did follow them forward, and if they sobered um, and subsequently passed mental um, status questions and were able to participate, we did enroll them at a later time. These are also adult-only patients, 18 and over.
0: Excellent. So you examined the prevalence of different forms of cannabis reported by the participants and, uh, as you said, compared the characteristics of patients who would have been identified with only a simple joint or smoking question and those who would have been captured with this expanded instrument. And you also looked at how these two populations differed by demographics and their blood cannabis results and their dependency measures and their risk perceptions. And you had 692 patients who answered questions about cannabis use. So what did you find in terms of what forms of marijuana were being used?
1: Sure. So uh, the overall patient population for motor vehicle collision patients was over 800. Um, And then we got many of them to answer these questions about cannabis use, almost 700. And I think the first striking thing is that cannabis use was extremely common in this population. So about 42% reported that they had used cannabis sometime in the past year, Um, extremely normalized. And then, you know, we did find that... that smoked forms of marijuana were the most common forms of use. Um, almost fifty percent of patients who used cannabis used it in that form. But we also found that there was a wide variety of forms and routes of of um, of cannabis use, including using it through uh, through a glass pipe or bowl or uh, using vaping pens. There was a lot of food and beverage products used. Um, hash concentrates also very common. Um, And Mm -hmm. so um, a a lot of use and a wide variety of forms of use.
0: And uh, what did you find about the use of the expanded instrument versus the standard tools?
1: Yeah. So this was interesting. Of the patients who reported cannabis use, um, we captured an additional 78 patients or about 27% of the total cannabis using sample were, were captured by the expanded instrument and would only have been captured by the expanded questions. In other words, they said no to kind of traditional forms, but used something else. That's impressive. Um, so we felt like there was, yeah, and really, you know, a significant uh, proportion of cannabis users uh, said yes to these other forms and, and would probably be missed in the past by the way that we
0: asked. Hmm. All right. How did the two populations differ in terms of demographics and their blood cannabis results and dependence measures? And uh, I think risk risk perceptions was the last one.
1: Yeah, I think it was interesting both how they differed and how they were the same. Um, I mean, we didn't see a lot of differences in these groups by age or gender. Um, And that was important to us because I think we have kind of preconceived notions about who uses what forms of canvas? There's a lot in the literature about, you know, kind of gendered perceptions, um, which changes Mm -hmm. the way that we screen. Sometimes, for example, we might fail to screen older women entirely, because that's not our internal perception of what a pot user looks like, you know. Um, So there are really no differences. Um, In terms of race and ethnicity, more captured by the expanded instrument only um, were were white. Um, More of the people in that expanded category only perceived high risk from regular cannabis use. In other words, they were more concerned in in that group about the harms of regular cannabis use. There were fewer that scored in the dependency range for cannabis use. Um, And this is kind of interesting. Um, They were more likely to be biosample negative, but if they were biosample positive uh, more of them had the higher levels of of Delta nine THC that we measured. So basically there was enough data here to suggest that these groups might be epidemiologically different and more, it might be that capturing only one set of patients might actually alter the kind of stigma or biases or clinical, you know, gestalt that we have around who is likely to be positive for drug use and who isn't. So um, I think using an expanded instrument to us really look like it might uh, be more inclusive and give us a broader idea uh, change some of our internal templates about who the you know quote unquote drug users are. Fantastic.
0: Are there any limitations of this study that you'd like to mention?
1: Yeah, you know you always think about how generalizable this is to our ED populations. I will say that um, we didn't have the capacity to include patients who were uh, who spoke a primary language other than English. So that is a major limitation to generalizability. Um, also you know we definitely wanted to look specifically at the injured population but be, because this was an injured population of drivers uh, that, that you know people who drive tend to be healthier younger and more affluent than those who don't so that's another bias um, and um, and I think the other thing is even though we found very high rates of uh, reported use and and that's not surprising in states that are um, that are legalized. This study was done in three states, um California, Colorado, and Oregon, that all have legalized cannabis for for regular use. I think it, in that sense, it's not hard to talk about your cannabis use. But on the other hand, when you get into a car accident, there is potential legal liability, so that may have limited people's um, you know perceived ability to report to us uh, fully their cannabis use, uh, even though we offered all the you know security and protections of a a research
0: project. Okay, totally understandable. So what do you think the audience should take away from this paper and what will come next? Yeah, I mean I hope that people read
1: this and think more expansively in terms of cannabis use and the language they use when they ask patients about cannabis. Um, I think we should be really aware that we're in a shifting landscape in terms of cannabis legalization. and, uh, and that means that our prior ideas about cannabis forms uh, of use need to shift as well. I mean, I think what we're seeing in Oregon, I'm sure in other states is, um, uh, you know, we often won't think of like a little lady who's altered as having had cannabis in her tea, but that is a very common scenario now. So I think we need to really shift our, our mental ideas about when to ask about, uh, about recreational drug use um, and to consider it more broadly in our differential um, and I, I think just recognize that use has been normative for a long time, and that's going to be increasingly true, I think, across the lifespan. Um, so, um, and then I think from a research perspective, I'm um, thinking about how do we make sure that our tools move with the reality of um, people's lived experience, and, um, and hopefully we can move forward, validate more comprehensive instruments like this, and, um, and start to incorporate that into our research protocols and our epidemiologic data collection
0: great points. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us and for doing this work. And Esther, it was so great catching up with you. It was great having you today. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes at AEM Early Access, all one word. Don't forget to read the full text of this article available open access from the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal for a limited time. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Gita Penza, and we'll see you next time.